Chris Farley was one of the most beloved entertainers of not only the 90s, but of all time. His success on the big and small screen was undeniable. From SNL to Tommy Boy and everything in between. But what happens when being the funniest guy in the room isn't enough? Live from L.A., it's death in entertainment. Live from Los Angeles. 911, what is your emergency? Here in Hollywood now. Two counts of murder, injury, and death. Oh my God! Shocking new details that has stunned the entertainment world. Um, this makes me a little nervous. The hair stood up on my arms. Just like in the movies. What do you call this thing, anyway? Death in entertainment. Hello, 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 Deados. We're back. Hi. Back. Another week. Back in black. Another death. Yes. Another episode. Another in entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> What's up, everybody? My name is Kyle Plouffe. My name is Mark Mulcairn. And I'm Alejandro Dowling. And we are coming in with a, uh, a highly requested episode. Episode oh, yeah. 49, the last one of the 40s. Uh, Mr. Chris Farley, everybody. Ooh. Yeah. Big fan over here. This one's going to be hilarious and sad, pretty yeah. much like all of them. Yeah. Um. So get ready. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what's our disclaimer we're doing these days now? Oh, yeah. Uh, if you're here for a Dateline NBC type coverage of someone's death, it ain't happening. Okay? Yeah. We're here to have a good time. We're sending these people out with a roast and a toast. Okay? We're having a little fun, but not at their expense. We're exactly. just having a laugh. And, uh, you know, because dark things are sometimes funny. And we got some dark sense of humor here, but you know we do. We are sensitive about the death of uh, Chris Farley and other people that we depict on here. Yes, and if you can't laugh at dark stuff sometimes, yeah, then, then what is it really all about? We're doomed as a society if yeah. we can't do that. Who even are you? Yeah, and with that, <laughs> <laughs> this episode is going to take us all the way back to December eighteenth, nineteen ninety seven. All right, guys. What do we have for the pop culture flash? December 18th, 1997. What was going on in the world of music? I'm going to kick it off here. Uh, I'm going to say the Billboard Top 3. I have Top 3 songs for you right here. Number 3, You Make Me Wanna by Usher. You make me want to leave the girl I'm with. Oh, that's that song. Start a new relationship I like that meme you. on Twitter with him where he's like, watch this. Watch this. <laughs> have you watch seen that? I don't, I don't think I've seen that. Oh, okay. Watch what? Um, it's like from a song that he did, but, uh, they use that meme to like people say, you know, watch this. If you think I haven't eaten too much of this buffet, watch this, watch this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's not like watch this video I made. No, 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 no. It's like, watch, like, it's like a, it's a bit, it's stupid. Um, okay. <laughs> number two, how do I live by Leanne Rhymes? Ooh, this used to make 10 year old Kyle cry. How do I live without, without you? you? I, I want to know. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Oddly enough, Trisha Yearwood sang this song at the exact same time. And that's the version that's in Con Air. Oh. Really? Yeah. So, yeah, because that was before Leanne Rhymes did it. Wait, yes. so is this like a stock song that like people just do? No. If, for some reason, two major recording artists, both in the country genre, recorded a version of it, and both of them were hits. Yeah. Wow. Same well, year. People do that, though. The song's that good. It's like like Blinded 
by the light. Uh, Manfred Mann did a version of that. It's Bruce Springsteen's song. Then he did a version. Oh, I yeah, I forgot. I got into an argument with someone at a bar about that, and then I was like. Then you came over and you're like, no, that's Springsteen's song. Yeah. I will not back about. you up for yeah. <laughs> just so you know, if you're wrong, I'm not going to back you up on some bullshit. Diane Warren wrote it. Okay. She's the one that wrote all those big movie hits. Yeah. In the 90s. The Michael Bay shit. Yeah. The oh, Aerosmith, yeah. I don't want to miss a thing and all that. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. She's the hit machine then. She's the monster. Wow. I've heard. Um, okay. so number one, Candle in the Wind, 1997 by Elton John. So, Kyle, do you want to explain what went on there? So, three and a half months prior to this, uh, Princess Diana died. And so, at her funeral, he did a version of Candle in the Wind that became a fucking monster and he hit. He made a lot of money out yeah, of it. Yeah. So much <laughs> <Yeah>. money. <laughs> and was it all to charity? Uh, I don't know that, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I think right. that was one of his big selling points, was like, I'm going to donate to the Diana Fund yeah. or something. Oh, the, the My new wig fund. <laughs> <laughs> and the original about Norma Jean, of course. Ah, uh, yes. Very apropos to happen right now, because the queen just died, and that's like a, oh, no songs for this. her, I noticed. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah what, what, are you busy out there? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Come on. So the interesting thing about this top three also is that from mid-October of 1997 to the first week of 1998, this was the top three, these three exact songs. Nothing changed. Uh, the you, order. You Make Me Wanna and How Do I Live swap places maybe once or twice, but Candle in the Wind was, it was number one for, I don't even know how long. It's even past 1998. Like, yeah, it's still number one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in all of our hearts. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was just crazy. I, I don't think... I've ever seen that where it's been the top three for the entire, pretty much all of fall, all of winter, and into a new year. Yeah. That is very interesting. So what's right. going on in the world of the box office? Well, you will be happy to know that number four is Flubber. Robin Williams' vehicle. Oh, the uh, dolphin movie? <laughs> no. No, the green flubber. Robin Williams is like a scientist. The absent-minded professor. Yeah. Oh, okay. And if you listen to the Robin Williams episode, you know that 1997 was a big movie year for Robin Williams. Yeah. He did Deconstructing Harry with Woody Allen. Yeah, who's retiring today. Is he? Yeah, he, it's on Twitter today. Good riddance. Good riddance? Bye-bye, you pedo weirdo. I'm not going to be making any more movies in the future. <laughs> yeah, Kyle, nice try. <laughs> <laughs> you love Annie Hall. We got a Woody sympathizer over here. No, I know. Okay. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I brought up Deconstructing Harry. And it was forced retirement, let's be honest. It's not like, yeah, well, it's he, not like Tom Brady He officially retiring. put in his papers, I guess, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, okay, well, he hasn't made a good movie since the 90s anyway, so. Yeah, he was done anyway. Since it's, his daughter was 12. Hey! Okay, and, anyway. Let's oh, I mean his this... wife, my bad, his wife. Oh, yeah. yeah Can yeah. we keep this? It was his daughter. Family yeah. friendly, please? Well, he does. So Robin Williams <laughs> was in um, Deconstructing Harry, Flubber, Father's Day, and Goodwill Hunting. Oh. Uh, four movies. yeah, that's right, yeah. Anyway, who cares? I'm so distracted by that. <laughs> Three, Tomorrow Never Dies, James Bond. Yeah. This one, it was his first after Goldeneye. Denise Richards in this too? No. no. You're thinking of The World Is Not Enough. Oh, uh, okay. Never mind. And then. I was thinking of Wild Things. 
That was. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good thriller. That's a very good thriller. Great movie. Yeah, very Great thrilling. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was okay. Tomorrow Never Dies. Whatever. Yeah. Not too memorable. Number two, Scream 2. Would you look at that? How's that? Hey. I don't know if I Two twos. I didn't like the Scream 2. Really? I no. liked it. I loved it when I first saw it. Yeah. Yeah. I like the, the first one. It's uh, so good and classic that I just kind of stick to that. Maybe I'll give it another watch tonight. It's a serviceable sequel. Okay. They made it real quick. It was less than a year after the first one. They had that heat going on with the Scream uh, franchise. Yeah, a lot of heat. That will come up in this um, this episode, how, how people like to do that in the 90s. What? Just instantly move on to the next movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Great. After a, a, a little bit of success. Is that a little hint to Alejandro right now? It's a little hint to move on to, to the to next movie. On. Mr. Yeah. Farley. Okay. No. <laughs> number one. The number one movie at this time. James Cameron. Leo. Kate. Avatar? Bates. <laughs> Zane. <laughs> as in Billy Zane. Why well, you get the whole cast? Titanic. Hey. Oh, King of the World. <laughs> it was a Titanic success. Hello. This movie. Okay. It's turning 25 this year, so Leo's oh. going to lose interest in it. Ah, oh. speaking wow. of memes. <laughs> you had that one locked and loaded. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of all the songs staying on the charts. Titanic, yeah. biggest movie ever, the number one, one movie for like six months. Yeah, and then he this. he outdid himself with Avatar, right? That took over Titanic as like biggest movie. Well, yeah, I mean, there's inflation too. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's but why yes. I want to know. What, I would need to know Thanks, tickets sold. That's the only metric that should be known. Apparently, Gone with the Wind is one of the most wow, the highest earning movie of all time, adjusted for inflation. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Yeah, wow. I believe it. Well, they paid probably the people on set like nothing. They were basically, you know. Yeah. And it made about $250 back in 1939. <laughs> <laughs> Which is $3 billion in today's money. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> wow, yeah, that inflation rate is pretty high. Yeah, pretty high. Again, yeah. thanks, yeah. Biden. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Crosby. I had no idea that uh, that was his middle name. Christopher Crosby. Christopher Crosby Farley. Huh. Hmm. He was born February 15th, 1964 to his parents, Tom and Marianne Farley. They had a big, giant, this is so like typical of, I feel like America, but Catholic families specifically. Yeah. Big Irish Catholic family, seven of them growing up. He had, uh, you know, his two parents, obviously, and then his brothers, Tom Jr., Kevin Farley, uh, John and his sister Barbara. Wow! And where did they live? They hailed from your home state. He was born in Madison, Wisconsin, and then grew up 
in Maple Bluff, which looks like a section of like North Center Madison, I guess. Madison, basically. Yeah. That but, sounds but like... is that like a, a neighborhood or is that a city? Because I don't know. I mean, it's like a small city. Yeah, it looks like that. a really small, tiny like fleck of a map that's like a part of... Uh, I think it was called the Dengel Shore or something, right on right on the water there. Yeah. There's some sort of lake or something. Our <laughs> uh, uh, geography expert here, Kyle. Yeah. Kluf. Well, I was trying to, you know, get a feel for like there what, what that would be like. It looked like yeah. a little thingy on the map, yeah, a little with tiny some water. Yeah, there's some water it. or something. There's some and, water, yeah. fucking dongle. <laughs> it was dongle like bag. Titanic or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. No, but you think Madison, you think of a, a major city, but where they lived was pretty suburban, and it looked very close to Madison. I wouldn't call Madison a major city oh, in really? terms of what you think of. It's a college city, really. There's no skyscrapers. Oh, okay. It's not like Milwaukee. It's like a college town. Yeah. And it is very suburban. Oh, okay. I mean, unlike most of our other subjects, especially recently with like Anne Hayes and stuff, uh, Charles Rocket, all these people, Chris actually had like a really good family and home life growing up. Very supportive parents. They just like to have a good time. They're always just like messing around at home. So his dad didn't make him go put his hand on the put wood his thumb stump. On a stump. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, he, had he didn't no... make him eat dinner at like gunpoint or anything. Yeah, or he... like... <laughs> they weren't Christian scientists. <laughs> no, <laughs> he didn't have a dad named Ham that threatened to cut his fingers off <laughs> for sucking his thumb. Oh man, Ham. Yeah, fucking Ham Rocket. Fuck him. Shit list. Anyway, shit list. Uh, Clavery. Yeah. <laughs> so his dad, Tom Senior, he owned an asphalt and oil company. Which usually that would be you would think like uptight like businessman dad like coming home Working being class. like I need the leads yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and then just taking it out on his kids yeah he beats his kids with uh, the lunch pail that he brought from the job and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> he's so angry he beats his kid with the fucking John Lemon leads <laughs> <laughs> or Jack Lemon the, no the uh, the Glen Gary the leads. Glen yeah. <laughs> you call yourself a salesman you son of a bitch there's Love no coffee in that house yeah no, no. so yeah. His dad would actually come home and instead of being like a stressed out mess, like most people's parents would be, he would just immediately get down on his hands and knees and start wrestling with everybody. Um, Kevin Farley said that his dad would just love coming home and whipping all the kids into a frenzy. Yeah. Just getting them nuts. <laughs> That's probably not the mom probably hated that. Oh, yeah, yeah I'm sure. <laughs> Everything's all quiet these, until he comes these knocking. Big monster kids are just bouncing off the walls and shit. <laughs> and this was a big guy. The Huge. Dad. They were all big people. Yeah. He was a, a, a massive human being. And that's what they said. That's why, like, his dad loved comedy. And so when they would watch, you know, late night shows on TV, they would always be drawn to, like, the Jonathan Winters of the world. Like, they loved big, fat comedians because it all reminded them of their dad. So, yeah, his dad would come home, throw them all around the house, and then would end up... The only time he would ever yell is when someone took it too far and, like, made the other one cry. And he'd just be like, you took it! Too far. <laughs> We're having a good time. Yeah. In high school, Chris was always a big kid growing up. You know, a lot of big kids in school would get picked on, but he never would because he was always hilarious. Everyone always loved him. Um, he was great at football. He played nose tackle, which if anybody listening does not know football, that's you're right on the defensive line, right in front of the guy who throws the ball between his legs on the offense. Yeah. So you you're going, be, to, going up against the center on the other side. Yeah. yeah. You are trying to kill the quarterback every play. So you got to be big. You got to be strong. You got to be explosive to be able to play this. And that was Chris. Yeah. 
Exactly. So he was good. He was an athlete, but he was also striving to make everybody laugh. And it was always in the back of his head that he wanted to, you know, get on stage and try some stuff. So when he went to college, he went to Marquette, which I didn't know. I always thought he was a Badger. And well, I went to the Badgers, uh, Wisconsin. Oh, UW Madison. Yeah, okay. I thought he went to Madison because it's right there. But he went to Marquette University in Milwaukee, and that's Maybe because not- it's a Catholic school. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That was a popular school, too. Marquette's huge. I mean, they're always like, they're not really a football school. He played rugby there. Um, but basketball, they're always in the tournament. But in terms of the experience, nothing compares to UW-Madison. I would assume not, yeah. I don't know why he didn't want go there. Especially if you're a football player. Yeah. Like, he could go and just crush there. Yeah, like walk on or try out or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, when he went to Marquette, he double majored in theater and communications. And he was just absolutely crushing on stage. So right away, he's just doubling down on the... That's a big shift for a working class kid. Yeah. Just all of a sudden, just to go, I'm not doing a business degree. You know, I'm, I I know exactly what I want to do, and I'm just going to go for it 100%. And, yeah. like, he didn't feel like a schmuck around his buddies, like his, you know, bro buddies saying, like, I, I want to be an actor. It's so funny because he did play rugby when he was in college, and he kept that dynamic of, like, the sensitive, tough guy. But one of his drama instructors said in an interview, he said most athletes would be scared to look like a pussy by going on stage and doing theater. Yeah. And he goes, Chris was tough, but Chris was also a pussy. (laughs) (laughs) He was always a performer, too. Yeah. And I believe it was high school. He pulled his dick out in computer class. Yeah. And then he got sent away. (laughs) Yeah. To like a reform school? To another school, yeah. yeah. He went to multiple schools in high school and ended up graduating uh, Edgewood High School of the Sacred Heart. He finally got pushed there and was like, <laughs> all right, just graduate and get out of here. Yeah. And then finally at a summer camp, one of the activities was to put on a play and he just shined in that play. Yes. So that's where it finally came together, setting the groundwork for college. Like what his calling was. Yeah. I'm surprised he still got into college. He still got into Marquette with these... You know, discipline issues. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. just a hellraiser. But yeah. it goes to show how much people liked him. So they probably didn't even like write him up that much. He probably just showed up to Mark Kennedy. He's like, can I go to your school? <laughs> <laughs> and, and did like a little show for them or something. <laughs> they let him in. La-di-da. You think he's going to fill out all the application paperwork? For no. yeah. <laughs> That's very true. Charm goes a long way. Oh, absolutely. Um, so he had a lot of energy, like you just said. Being on stage didn't always like just take care of it. He just was always ramped up. And he so, needed more more of an outlet. Yeah. So, I mean, like anybody, college is where you go. Your drinking ramps up maybe a little bit. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> hell yeah. <laughs> just when Chris Farley needed, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. I feel like Wisconsin is very much like Boston as well, where it's like you definitely start drinking at a younger age maybe than other places, I yeah. would assume. I would say so. Because yeah. <laughs> I think the winter does that to people. It For just real, makes yeah. you have to sleep in, uh, not uh, drink in cars. And me and my friends would just uh, keep booze outside because it's like cold out. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's so you can stash it in like a yeah. field or something rather than bring it back into your house or something. <laughs> it's so the winter is terrible. Yeah. yeah. And everybody turns into a professional drinker. It's a good way to deal with the cold and like hide it. You can... If it's freezing out, cops won't even pull you over. Like, they're not even going to get It's too cold to deal with any of this shit. I literally, I got pulled over going, like, 
110 miles an hour on the Mass Pike. Yeah. After doing shows in Worcester, and I was going back to Boston, which is like, you know, 45-minute drive, and I'm just flying. And it's the coldest day of the year in Massachusetts, and the cop pulls me over and runs to my passenger side window. I put it down, and he goes, why the fuck are you going so fast? And I was like, I don't know. I'm just trying to get home. I did a comedy show in Worcester, and I'm, I'm going back to home in uh, yeah. Boston. And he just goes, it's fucking freezing out here. Slow the fuck down. And he just, <laughs> just took off. <laughs> he was like, I'm not filling out all that paperwork. No. Yeah. The outside. yeah. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so it's true. It um, is. So he ended up graduating and moved back to Madison, back to uh, Maple Bluff. Big town. Big Sounds city. like such a nice like suburban area, but also where... A man like kills his whole family. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I'm so surprised. Like his dad had his shit together. Um, so he ended up working with his for his dad while he was like figuring out, you know, what to do after college. He sure. graduated. It was 1986 when he graduated college. You know, he still had the theater bug that bit him. So he showed up to Arc Improv in Madison. And when he showed up, a class was like getting let out. And he asked the instructor about classes. The teacher was like, hey, listen, classes are done for the day, but if you want to come back tomorrow, the next day was Saturday morning. He's like, my wife is doing a class, and she'll be able to get you started. Like a workshop or something? Yeah. So the guy goes home, thinks nothing of it, and then the next morning, uh, he's just chilling at home, and he gets a call from his wife being like, uh, did you tell some guy to show up to my class this morning? <laughs> and he's like, what? And she's like, yeah, some bigger guy. And he's like, oh, my God. He's like, I did. He's like, I didn't think he would actually show up. Why? What happened? And she was like, oh, thanks. Uh, he showed up with a case of beer for the whole class and just went crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but imagine like your first time like doing improv. The first time I did it just with other people, you're just trying to be funny in front mm -hmm. of. It's just a weird thing. And yeah. I'm sure he had tons of anxiety and shit. Oh, yeah. And that can manifest in different ways. Some people have to go to the bathroom. Some people clam up. Yeah. He probably just exploded. Yeah. He just drinks and then just like screams and like, you know, probably jumps up and down and stuff. Fatty fall down. <laughs> Tommy one wingy. <laughs> it quickly became very clear to everyone that Chris was too talented to stay in Madison. So he decided to pack up his bags and go to the farm leagues for improv and sketch which is Chicago, Illinois. Chat this town. reminds me of the trajectory of Robin Williams a little bit. Yeah. He was on another level compared to everyone else around him as a performer. Absolutely. It's like, dude, at a certain point when you're like up with people who are just, you know, either doing it as a hobby or are not nearly as talented, you're just like blowing them off the stage. Yeah. It's like, all right, and bro. The, the people that came out of that Chicago era of time was like crazy, like Steve Carell, like, you yes. know, uh, Colbert, like... Tons of people came out of that era. Who it's unreal. Like, yeah. like, I think Conan was kicking around there then, and Jeff Garland, and like, yeah, there was so many people that came out of that time in Chicago. It's easier to name people that didn't come out of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Chicago. Shit, right? yeah. Not even just like Chicago, where a lot of people do come from, but that era also. Yeah, people were moving there specifically for improv and Mike sketch. Myers was there, I think, still. He's coming right up. All righty. So Chris went to Chicago in 1987 and started performing at the Improv Olympic. Improv Olympic or Improv Olympics? Olympic. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No pluralization. Um, the place that took a lot of money from me very oh, gleefully. Me too. I, <laughs> I did all seven or eight, or they kept adding on levels You know, when I finished and oh, stuff. They... But I worked there at Improv Olympic in LA. Oh, really? And the thing about Improv Olympic, the name, is they can't call it that anymore because the Olympics sued them. Ah. So now they're I.O. Oh! And now they're actually all done also. Is it done here too? Yeah. 
Wow. It was done here way even before the pandemic because the uh, the artistic director got canceled. A guy who was actually on Chris Farley's first improv team. Wow. All that's comes full circle. Yeah. He now is a bartender. Oh, on, that's the guy? That's the guy. He was on a team with Chris Farley? Yes. Oh, I've met this guy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know wow. how much we want to leave this in. Wow. I'm shocked that that guy was a part of a team with Chris Farley in Chicago. Yeah, that guy, he went way back, and he uh, he knew a ton of people. There were pictures at uh, I.O. before it closed that had all these old teams and um, pictures of, like, Matt Besser when, when they started um, with Adam McKay's team and stuff. And, like, yeah, yeah there's a lot of, uh, there was a lot of history there at that Hollywood uh, location, but it's no longer... There in IO is done as as far as I know it because the owner, whatever her name was, I can't think of it right now, but she, Sharna Halpern. Sharna Halpern, yeah, who started with Del Close. She fucked up and like put way too much money in the Chicago location with like a beer garden and then it all was in jeopardy and now it's all gone. When Ooh. I was there, it was in the fun Wrigleyville location. <laughs> you say that. Well, no, the location was fun. Yeah. I mean, it was fun to do improv and then go get beers. Of course, yeah. That, that Right across from Wrigley, there's some cool bar. Yeah. I've, I've been there before. I had a great time, but I also gave them a lot of money. I know. Yeah. What are you going to do? That's improv, though. I'm not Chris Farley. No. <laughs> not many of us are. No. Chris Farley isn't even Chris Farley anymore. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Spoiler alert, everybody. Let's get back on track. All here. right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so he really started shining at Improv Olympic, and it, he started taking his you know hobby and taking it to a professional level where he was ready for you know actually making this his career. Um, he was invited over to Second City to join their touring group, and he started the same exact day as fellow comedic actor Stephen Colbert. Wow, okay. First day together, they were both there at the same time. And he quickly rose up the ranks over there. He became a part of three teams, and it's hard enough just to make one, but everyone loved having him around. Well, that's where you make the money, because Second City actually has money to pay people, whereas you take I.O. classes until you're you know dead and you don't make a dime. But if you go to Second City, you get like their touring, like they do cruises and stuff yeah. they'll, they'll fly you down to florida and do a cruise wow yeah there's a lot of bleed over that go working back with io and then also second City. yeah and del close had started second city with the people that started that i think and then he yeah, io was a i believe io was a branch off of second city yes that's oh right. really and del close and del close that. yeah yeah. and then his lover or madam whatever you call her <laughs> okay. Halpern, yeah his she friend, took it yeah. over when yeah, he died she did yeah Oof. And she screwed it and up. she really messed it up i'm yes. reading here about the fella that i met before um, I didn't realize he was the former artistic director of I.O. Yep. And he was let go in 2016 amidst, amidst allegations of sexual harassment. Halpern said that she never received any complaints about him. And a million people from I.O. said, we told you about this a million times. Yeah. What a that, creep. That was yeah. a crazy thing. That Both happened. of them. Yeah, wow. I know. Well, I think people said that they could have had something together. I don't want to overly speculate about these things because this is a person I see sometimes. <laughs> oh, fuck. Well, Hal Halpern. Oh, shit. Should I not even talk about this? Do it. Halpern said in a uh, later deleted Facebook post, the complaints never happened, saying there are times when there are women who just like to either cause trouble or get revenge or just want attention. So they make up stories. Oh, <laughs> my lordy. Them lordy. some fighting words. I can say as someone who worked as the manager there that there was some creepiness going on there. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. I was a house manager. Oof. And uh, not 
some bad stories went on, but for the most part, it was positive. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Um, so Stephen Colbert starts the same day as Farley in yeah. Second City. Yes. And this would have been around 1988 or something? Uh, 87, 88. Yep. Okay. And so... Everyone loved having him around. He would just be screaming and falling over, doing classic Chris Farley stuff, but also doing classic bits like whipping his dick out that we already talked about. <laughs> oh, that's like one of his go-to things. This time not in a computer class. Yeah. <laughs> um, literally, he would be like in the wings waiting to get his cue to like go on for a sketch and just have his dick out so that the other actors could see on stage. Oh, and nice. they would be like, fucking dude, like you're about to come on stage. Like you're going to show the crowd your dick. And then as soon as they hit their line that he needs to come out on, he would just zip it up and run out <laughs> like nothing happened. Wow. And you said mooning as well. And mooning yeah. too. Yeah. Like there would be times he'd have his pants down at his completely at his ankles. And they're about to hit the line where he's coming on, and then he'd just fucking rip him right up and put him on and run out. And the thing about Chris Farley is that, on paper, this sounds like obnoxious behavior. Yeah. yeah. But because it's Chris Farley, it's hilarious. Yeah, I'm like, this is stuff that would get you canceled now. But back then, it's just like, oh, it's Chris. Yeah. <laughs> I think I saw an improv team one time. They were pulling their pants down before they were about to go like the lights were about to go up. Oh, Jesus. I'm like, what is that all about? And I think it was like a thing they did with each other just to get psych each other up. <laughs> Some of the improv freaks get a little yeah, they weirdo get weird schmierdo yeah. when it comes to the craft. Kind of culty and yeah, weird yeah. stuff. So from 1987 to 1990, all he did was drink and hone his craft. He would team up with comedian, actor, and writer Bob Odenkirk. Wow. Better call Saul. Yeah, to work on sketches and characters in Chicago. One of the characters that Chris came up with was Matt Foley, the motivational speaker. And that's a, actually a Farley Odenkirk creation. And I also, I had no idea that Matt Foley was a real guy. That Chris knew. Yeah, he's a priest now. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> yeah. He was one of uh, Chris's childhood friends. And um, he's still doing masses in Wisconsin as we speak. So Bob Odenkirk had this character that Chris mentioned, and then he helped craft it into the three-minute, you know, legendary yes. uh, sketch that it is today. Yeah. Also to note about Chris is that he didn't write. Exactly. Fully relied on other people to come up with the sketches for him. Yeah. yeah. So Bob Odenkirk really is the one that came up with the overall concept. Yeah. He was such a an angry writer back then, Bob Odenkirk. Odenkirk? <laughs> I don't, I don't, he, he admits it like he was a fucking asshole. Really? Oh, he was awful. He like even David Cross would say that. Like David Cross and him uh, did Mr. Show, Show together. Yeah, yeah he'd be like he, he was just kind of a sh you know. But people kept him around because he kept the room honest and he was like a good filter. He would uh, like uh, smack down anything he thought was was really that bad. Really? Yeah. So he was like a comedy, like elitist almost. And kind like, of. Was aggressive about it? I think so. Yeah. And he was kind of a shitbag. I think he just was climbing the ladder and he was kind of fed up where it was taking him. I heard him say like he hated Lauren Michaels, but in retrospect, he just didn't like him because he was the boss. Like it was right. just such a dumb young inclination to out of nowhere. Just, you know, it doesn't mean anything. He wanted to get where he's at now the whole yeah. time. Yeah. Well, and he was writing for SNL like at a pretty young age. Like I'm not, I don't. I wouldn't be crying for this guy. You know, he did pretty well for himself. <laughs> Not at all. Even before he became an action star. And that means yeah, an <laughs> action we all star. Went to. We did. Yeah, uh, no, yeah. nobody. Yep. Yeah, nobody. nobody. And yeah. it gave him a heart attack. Yeah. Yeah. Better call Saul gave him a heart attack. So maybe he should not 
do action movies. But he wants to do more. He wants God. to do a sequel to that, I think. He actually credited Chris for him uh, wanting to become a dramatic actor. Really? Yeah. Didn't want to just like do full-time comedy. Which I would have loved to see Chris in a dramatic role. Yeah. Tommy yeah, he, Boy has so hints good. of drama. Yes. But yeah. you know what I mean? Like There's some Paul Thomas moments. Anderson probably would have yeah. put him in something. Like he did with Adam Sandler. Yeah. yeah. One other note about Bob Odenkirk. He said that his daughter once asked him, what's the best thing you've done in show business? And then Odenkirk said, me and Chris Farley on the stage doing motivational speaker. Nothing even comes close. Yeah. Wow. They did it at Second City. Yeah. Yep. So one of Chris's friends from Second City, a fellow by the name of Mike Myers. Uh, Whoa. Shooing. Hello. <laughs> he was featured um, as a featured player on SNL in 1989. And when he got there, Lauren asked him, who should we consider for the show? And he immediately said Chris Farley. He gave him a bunch of names, but Chris was the first and the loudest. Like, you need to get this guy. Stephen Colbert, yeah. Steve Carell, <laughs> yeah. Chris Farley. Yeah. The following year in 1990, Chris was officially called up to the big leagues. Live from New York, it's Saturday night. Oh, wow. He had actually never been to New York City until he got cast on SNL. So he's like this small town kid that's just like. <laughs> he's really that Tommy boy. He's got like his uh, his suitcase is basically a trash bag that's <laughs> yeah. like taped up. <laughs> I'm looking for SNL. Yeah, he's got like the handkerchief <laughs> right on off stick. the bus. Yeah, <laughs> he's got the stick and bindle. <laughs> so the 1990-91 cast is phenomenal. Uh, it's Dana Carvey, Phil Hartman, Jan Hooks, Victoria Jackson, Dennis Miller, hey, babe. <laughs> Mike Myers. <laughs> Kevin Nealon, Chris Farley, Tim Meadows, Chris Rock, Julia Sweeney, A. Whitney Brown, Al Franken. Oh, my God. Adam Sandler. Wow. This this list. Rob Schneider and David Spade. Now, that's a cast. That's That's a a fucking fucking cast. cast. The 1990 to 1991 season was um, a year of transition, if you will, because John Lovitz and Nora Dunn left the show. After the previous season, two um, big names on the show at that giant point. Giant names on the show. Yeah. Um, because they got into a huge controversy at the end of the 1989 1990 season. The controversy, if you don't remember, at the end of the 89 90 season, Andrew Dice Clay was scheduled to perform and host the second to last episode. Oh! Ace Hole! Ace Hole! <laughs> Little Miss Muffet sat on the top of hey. <laughs> I'm hosting over here. Hey! <laughs> Uh, so nice tits, Nora. <laughs> yeah, probably. Nora Dunn told people on the cast that she didn't want to perform if Dice was actually going to be hosting because he's a homophobe and a misogynist. And John Levitz was like, "Huh?" He's like, "It's a character. It's not to be taken seriously. He's a fucking buffoon. Like, it's a complete character. It's not a real person." Yeah. He's like, I know Andrew. He's a very nice guy. John Levitz is saying this. Yeah. He sounds very grounded for yeah, John he does. Lovitz. <laughs> <laughs> I know this guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when Dice arrives to meet the cast, uh, Nora isn't there. She's actually across the street doing press for comic relief. And word got to Dice that she didn't want to do the show with him. So Dice straight up asked the cast, he goes, is there anyone that here that does not want to work with me this week? It's okay. Like, if you want to go, you can go. Yeah. I get it. And the whole cast was like, of course not. We're here to work. Like, Nora's going to be here, too. She's just doing press. Little did they know that she was across the street literally saying to the press that she will not be at the show because she believes in women and gay rights 
And if anyone has a spine, they wouldn't be working on this show. Oh, man. That is fucking hard. That's the part that I don't agree with. It's fine to say your opinion, but she definitely put all the cast members in a bad position. She threw everyone under the bus and they had no idea. That's not fair. No, not fair at all. Uh, Al Franken did that, I think, a few years later or around this time. He went to the press and said, uh, Saturday Night Live stinks now. It sucks. Like, Because ever- he didn't get Weekend Update. Yeah, uh, he was bitter. He and- was vying for Weekend Update. Yeah, and Norm MacDonald got it. Norm MacDonald made fun of him or something. Ah! Because <laughs> Al Franken did this, some big letter to all the staff and production of uh, SNL. And at the tail end, his Stuart Smalley movie bombed. Yeah. So he was not in a He's good He's taking mode. it out on the world. <laughs> <laughs> and they say, I think uh, Victoria Jackson said that Nora Dunn kind of got the feeling she wasn't going to be asked back. So oh. she was trying to create a little press. She was, herself. yeah, she was press bombing to try to like gain some attention before she went off and did her own thing. A lot of people do stuff like that these days, you know. They, it's they, they a use, desperate use, move, but it's probably smart. I don't know. Uh, Victoria Jackson, though, I don't know if she's a reliable. Well, source. she's kind of kooky. Uh, she is pretty kooky. <laughs> Jesus freak. Yeah, and QAnon. Yeah, yeah. Frontman. QAnon. All of the above. Victoria yeah. Jackson. But I still a have a, a soft spot for her. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no follow-up questions. No, that. She, was, she was brilliant <laughs> in the SNL '80s sketches. She was in Toonses, The Cat, The yeah. Chopping Broccoli. She yeah. was in a lot of classics. She played oh, a great Hillary Clinton. Oh, she did Hillary too. I think so. Roseanne. I think Jan Hooks did Hillary. Maybe you're right, but but when she left, they still needed a Hillary. Probably so. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think it was Kate McKinnon. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so the cast was furious when they found out that she threw them all under the bus. She made it look like they didn't care about women or gay people. Uh, so she missed that episode. She did not show up for the week. Did not show up. Breach for of the contract. Show. This is the season finale, right? No, this is the second to last. Oh, it is. So she comes back for the season finale. Oh. Not one person speaks to her the whole time. Oh. And she was canned right after that. Holy shit. Gone. Wow. Yeah. And then when she came back for the finale, everyone was like, fuck you. Nobody talked to her. And she left and never talked to like any of them again. Different and- scenario, but that's kind of reminds me of Larry David. He quit SNL as a writer there. And then he tried to come back on Monday. They did it. <laughs> <laughs> and see if anyone would notice, but uh, they did a Seinfeld with, with that story. Oh, that's George does that. Yeah, yeah that's a famous story. <laughs> and by the way, as a side note, Andrew Dice Clay was a team player, and it's actually a very funny episode. Mm. He wasn't banned for life, like uh, not he, at all. But he was from MTV. From MTV, MTV, which was. is surprising because you would think that he would be banned by SNL before MTV because MTV is his crowd. The thing about SNL is they want to be the rebels too. They want to yeah. shake things up yeah. just enough. For instance, when Sinead O'Connor ripped the picture of the Pope, Lauren actually respected the guts it took to do that. Oh, wow. Yeah. But he still had to, you know, But he was act. still pissed off at Elvis Costello for playing Radio Radio when he didn't want him to play that or something. <laughs> nah, well, that's he was giving him the ego, finger. Yeah, yeah it's probably. I don't know. So after that finale, Love It's Leaves, Nora Dunn is not asked back, and Lauren needs new blood for the show. So he introduced a number of team players who quickly became stars. Chris Farley, Tim Meadows, Chris Rock, Adam Sandler, Rob Schneider, David Spade, and Julia Sweeney. So the happy Madison crew. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. They all have instant hits with characters. Julia Sweeney's uh, everybody's favorite androgynous person, Pat. Yeah, oh boy. Uh, Charles Rocket was in the movie version. Kyle. Playing Kyle, the neighbor. The villain, yep. 
Oh, awful name. Adam Sandler <laughs> played Opera Man. George Carlin agrees with you. <laughs> Have you met Todd? Do you know Kyle? <laughs> I'm Kyle. Hi, I'm Kyle. <laughs> um, Chris's Matt Foley and the Chippendales dancer. That was one of his early sketches. I know. I'm going to get into that okay. in a second. Rob Schneider's uh, Make It Copies, the annoying oh, office yeah. guy. David Spade did Hollywood Minute, and Chris Rock had The Dark Side with Nat X, which were all huge characters yeah. and sketches for the show, like yeah. immediately. Um, so the whole Chippendales thing, I didn't realize it was his first season, and early in his first season when that actually happened with Patrick Swayze. I believe his fourth episode. Yeah. He actually was really torn about doing it, and a lot of people like... Sandler and Chris Rock still don't forgive uh, a Lord lot of Michaels, people yeah. who pushed that through. Same, Bob through? Odenkirk said something about it, and too. Bob, yeah. too, yeah. yeah. And Chris what? Rock was on uh, Howard Stern talking about it. The line at the end of the sketch? No, just about? the fact that the, his flabbiness was the joke, the yeah. butt of the joke. And then the, the button on it is, no, you're a fat slob. Why would you ever think that you would get this job? Yeah. That's what's called an unnecessary yeah. add-on exactly. to a sketch. Right. It was funny. They should have just let Chris win. He dances in it. It's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. And at the end of the sketch, that's when the judges, it's like hammering you on the head with the point. Like, if you didn't get it, yeah. we know he's fat and yeah. we're going to call attention to it. Yeah. So he, he was calling people. He called like Dan Aykroyd and um, Tom Arnold to be like, should I even do this sketch? Like, it's just relying on me being fat and dancing with no shirt on and then they call me fat at the end and uh everyone was like you know you do what you gotta do but tom arnold was like of course you gotta do it i like how his brain <laughs> trust is uh dan Aykroyd and tom arnold yeah, let me get Two some of the craziest people let me get Not some sound sound advice from tom <laughs> yeah. arnold who's fucking married to yeah. roseanne who's fucking i think they're both autistic <laughs> too yeah <laughs> And, and the, the other guy one, who believes in aliens. And ghosts and aliens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fucking maniac. <laughs> the guy that made nothing but trouble. And he's Let a, me see what he has to yeah. say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, like, I hope he, he gave him advice as Ray Zelinsky from, uh, from <laughs> Tommy Boy. Tom Arnold said specifically, go out and be the funniest fat guy ever. Yes, exactly. And he did. He sure did. Yeah. They said um, that was the first sketch that they saw, and like the SNL cast and writers were like, oh my God, this guy's going to be a star. So it did help him in the long run. That was everywhere yeah. in the 90s, that yeah. sketch. Yeah. It was on every best of tape special. It was like the centerpiece of the early 90s SNL. Yeah. yeah. He was crazy, but I heard um, in the, the book Truth and Comedy... For I.O. students, basically, they give this out to anyone that takes the Oh, I class. do have that book. You have a copy? Yeah. Well, in it, um, Chris's first coach was Del Close, actually. And Del Close is like, man, you are just like a wild animal. Like, you're the thing that we put on the front of boats, you yeah. know? Because <laughs> you're just such a... And you just ha he had to rein in kind of that energy a little bit. And this is Del Close saying that, who's yeah, also a maniac. a crackhead maniac, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, he's taking advice from the most insane people <laughs> in the world. Yeah. Um, so Chris Rock actually did say, he said, I always hated that sketch. The joke of it basically is we can't hire you because you're fat. Yeah. He's like, I mean, he's a fat guy and you're going to ask him to dance with no shirt on. OK, that's enough. You're going to get that laugh. But when he stops dancing, you have to turn it in his favor. There's no turn there. There's no comic twist to it. It's just fucking mean. A more mentally together Chris Farley wouldn't have done it. But Chris wanted to be liked. It was a weird moment in Chris's life, and as funny as that sketch was, and as many accolades as he got for it, it's one of the things that killed him. It really is. Something happened right then. 
Oh wow, That's that is deep. so dramatic about so it. So dramatic. Yeah. It also launched him. Yeah, but he was concerned about. It. He's a very sensitive guy. That's a thing that like comes out about him is that, you know, he is worried about his image and he thinks he's like some big dumb idiot that people just laugh at instead of laugh with. Well, I'll give you some context to see like what his thought process was. He like he's coming into a situation where people are getting fired left and right from SNL. There, like an article had recently come out about like is SNL done? You know, I think it was a New York Times piece or something or New Yorker, and like people come and go. You don't really feel comfortable there until you're like three years in. Mm-hmm. So he was like, you know, if I don't do this, I'm I'm that guy that doesn't do stuff. You know. Yeah. Here's how it goes though. That sketch. There's a moment before they go back out to face the judges where Patrick Swayze and him are talking backstage and they're both complimenting each other. And Swayze's like, no way I won, man. You killed it. And the sketch is brilliant up until that point. And that's a wonderful, sweet kind of backstage banter. Then they go out and the judges say the unnecessary, sorry, we're going to hire the guy that's fit. Because without that last line, it actually proves a good point. The more dynamic performer is Chris Farley. And he's more entertaining. Absolutely. Yeah. So they think that it really like went into his psyche that, you know, this is what he's here for. He's someone to be laughed at. Um, yeah. It really made him depressed is what, you know, Chris Rock takes from it. And also Bob Odenkirk and a few other people that were there at the time. Well, because Belushi, he was known as the bigger guy, but he wasn't just like the fat dude. I don't know. He was kind of like that wild party animal that, you know, does something. And it's so funny. And women liked both of them. They found both of them sexy because of their personality. It really transcends how big physically they were. Yeah. Yeah. So Uh, Adam Sandler said um, in his documentary that it was really cool to see when Chris started making money because he went from being like this dude that was just in jeans and like a flannel top to like a guy that wore suits and sunglasses and like slicked his hair back. Yeah. (laughs) He started looking crazier though. (laughs) After meeting Christian Slater. Yes, that's exactly. (laughs) Wait, that was it? Yeah. Yeah. Hey man, you got to slick your hair back. Yeah. So he started like wetting his hair and slicking it back after meeting Christian Slater. Christian Slater's awesome. (laughs) Spade is like, what the fuck? He sees Farley with the slick hair. Yeah. (laughs) what are you doing? <laughs> Star of Broken Arrow changed his life. They weren't his in, hairstyle. They weren't in a movie together, so I'm like, where did they cross SNL. paths? SNL. Oh, just SNL. Yeah, okay. he was hosting. Well, yep. they really took, he took him under his wing, really, that mm, one week. He did. <laughs> <laughs> so his time at SNL was like, everything came together perfectly for the rest of his career, because he got matched up with David Spade, because at SNL, they always will take two cast members, and they'll put you together, throw you in an office and say, you two come up with stuff together, figure it out. And so Chris Farley and David Spade were in the same office. And then Chris Rock and Adam Sandler were in another office, but they had to walk through theirs to get to theirs. So like the door would be open. It would just be all four of them just fucking hanging out. Crazy party. Well, David Spade came on as a writer first, right? He didn't get a featured spot like the rest of these uh, dudes were, I think. I'm not sure. That sounds right. Yeah, I think David Spade had to like really fight his way into that cast, basically. Yeah. You're right. He did have to ease his way in. Yeah, because yeah. he was like a really smart stand-up, and I think he had to like... He didn't have like the chops that uh, Chris Farley had. Yeah, he had a long climb to get to. Yeah, SNL. and he ta- he discusses like it's cutthroat, and he's like, I, it was really every day you just had to really be on your shit, or else someone's gonna take your spot, or someone's gonna get sketches in front of you. And I didn't know how 
hard, like how competitive it was. And like yeah. Mike Myers, he's he's like I'm this nice, you know, funny guy, but he was like the most competitive guy in the world. Mm-hmm. With all they're that all shit. super cutthroat. So the show's ratings started coming back up, and all these cast members are taken off together. They all have like star power. Mike Myers and Dana Carvey have Wayne's World. It becomes a movie, and it's its own phenomenon. And they put Chris in it. Uh, so that's his first movie, and Mike really loved Chris, but saw what success started doing to him and said he went from loving him to fearing him. Oh, my God. Mm. Um, cocaine and booze just like started affecting everything about that's him. That's so opposite of Mike Myers. Yeah. <laughs> but he told him, he's like, dude, you need to stop. And so there were people along the way at SNL being like, you need to get off the coke. You need to stop drinking so much. Yeah. Just, you know, take it easy and work. Might I add that some of his depressive tendencies might have a little to do with the fact that he was drunk and on drugs all the time. Yeah. And and then in order to get ready for performances, he drank like fucking eight gallons of uh, like cappuccino or espresso. And like a bottle of Jack Daniels or something. Yeah. Because he'd be slurring and they'd be like, oh my God, like how are we going to get him ready for rehearsals? And then he'd go out and be fine. And I never thought I'd quote Tom Arnold so often, (laughs) but he also said, Chris, man, you can't be fat and on drugs. <laughs> one or the other. Yeah, one yeah. or the other. Who, who's he talking to? <laughs> <laughs> Again, I will say it on this podcast. Look into a mirror sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Tom Arnold. <laughs> Marco, he's keeping everybody honest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So Bernie Brillstein actually um, represented Chris at the time. So Bernie Brillstein and Lauren Michaels both sent Chris to rehab multiple times for alcohol and cocaine abuse. And that's how talented and popular Chris was. These guys are paying out of pocket themselves to get him better. In the middle of his SNL run. Yeah. So like a lot of times if you're too much for people to handle, like you're fucking not working as hard as you should, you're gone. But... For Chris, they actually tried. They had an intervention for him at SNL, and um, a lot of people backstage were just like, dude, you need to like get your life together. We love you. We care about you. Um, David Spade really said, like, we saw him drinking, but everyone was drinking, so who cares? It was only like when it really started to ramp up that there was a problem. Yeah. Um, Chris would want to go out after like rehearsals or writing sessions or the actual show to be like, let's get fucked up. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. And remember, he wasn't a writer. Right. They all were locking themselves in like, we got to write some shit. Yeah. Yes. That, that Monday through uh, Thursday run through of that show is like hell. And Chris just shows up like, you know, he just reads his lines and does amazing. But he doesn't have to go through that process of doing pitches and touch ups and yeah. like, you know, re- retrying it and stuff. He just reads it, which yeah. is that's the where to, you want to be. That's his skill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Chris looked at David Spade as his, as his best friend. So he's like, we're going to drink together. We're going to do whatever I want to do. But you're going <laughs> to yeah. come with me. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how much Tommy Boy is pretty much a documentary. Dude, there's even more than you think about that movie. Okay. I can't wait. To I can't wait to it. get into yeah. it. Yeah. Um, they'd be walking down the street in New York City together and strangers would be outside of a bar being like holy shit david spade chris farley come and drink with us and dave would be like ah no i'm good and chris would be like okay and just go in with them and he said it was awkward for him because like 
now he needs to go drink with strangers because Chris wants to. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, but it was also awkward for the people who asked him because they were just saying it kind of half-heartedly as a joke. <laughs> <laughs> but then he did go in with them and yeah. drank, and it's kind of like, well, what now? <laughs> I love the people that call you out, and then they, they go, I got to stay with you tonight. And you're you living with this person for like a month. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> everyone's afraid to be polite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, yeah, and Tim Meadows even said in Chicago, everybody socialized and drank. It was just part of Chicago. And in New York, he made more money and the drugs got harder. That was the difference. Wow. Um, Fellow cast member Melanie Hutzel said that one time she was on an elevator and it opens up and Chris is standing there. His eyes are bugging out. His hair is all messed up. He's sweating, clearly having a bad reaction to drugs. Yeah. yeah. And so then she's like, fuck, I got to hide him. Oh. I don't want like the higher ups to see him. So she's like, let's go up and put him in one of the writers' rooms. They go up, you know, what is it? Studio 8H, whatever floor that is. Yeah. The door opens. There's a bunch of executives, a bunch of people. She's oh. like, fuck, let's go back down. They shut the door. They go down. The door opens. It's Lorne Michaels. Oh. <laughs> and Chris Farley is like, I'm sorry, Lauren, don't fire me. I fucked up. And then Lauren just took him in his arms and he's like, all right, Chris, let's get you some help. Yeah. It's funny because David Spade would always have to deal with shit like this. And I guess there was some big dinner with Steve Martin, you know, Martin Short. Every, like, you know, legend in the industry was there, including, like, executives and just, like, very important people. And David Spade looked at Chris Farley and was like, I got to get this guy out of here. He was to the point that he was so fucked up. Yeah. It was, like, bizarre to have him around there. So he kind of, like, snuck him out the back of this dinner and stuff. Because they were all facing each other, and they were they were going to be there for hours. It's and not appropriate. Like, yeah, he's like, this is going to go. Drunk, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't appropriate at all. So even Kevin Nealon said, I remember seeing him starting to get more sweaty in sketches, and his moods would change. Uh, when he first showed up, he was that lovable guy. And then you started to see sides of him that were a little more irritated, more impatient. Um, Tom Davis was the writer. I think he's one of the guys who came up with uh, the actual character of Chris Farley for the Chris Farley show. He saw the more sensitive, awkward side to him and was yeah. like, oh, we're running with this. Um, Brilliant. Yeah. And Tom Davis says of himself, because he started the intervention, and he goes, and when Tom Davis is the one doing the intervention for you, that's when you know you're in trouble. Yeah, because apparently he was like a big fucking booze hound too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he used to be a comedy team with Al Franken in the first go around of SNL. Oh, okay, so you know there was a lot going on. He was getting shipped out, and he was making himself an easy target for being fired because, like we said, he didn't write. So yeah. he was just like going on stage, and if you're not bringing that a hundred percent, and you're the guy that's causing you know some bad press to leak through about your troubles backstage and yeah. all that stuff, you're making it easy for them to cut you. The problem with that week is it's so jam-packed, and there's no patience or no time for people fucking up the system. Yeah. Because they have to get it all done, and they're staying up until 2 a.m. every night doing this show Monday through Thursday or whatever whatever they do. Yeah. So, yeah, that that would piss me off if a guy like that, as talented as he was, was, like, fucking shit up. And one time he tried to write something to fit in. Yeah. And <laughs> it was a 14-page uh, sketch called Puppy Lawyer. Arf, <laughs> <laughs> arf! And they what? said it was one of the worst things that anyone's ever written. But they actually read they read it at read through. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. And the look on everyone's face is like, <laughs> what the fuck is this? Yeah. That's so funny. But 
everyone past, present, and future at SNL genuinely loved Chris. He was asked to be in every like SNL alum production from Wayne's World 1 and 2, Billy Madison, Airheads, Coneheads, and then later in Dirty Work with Norm MacDonald. Yeah, yes. Um, so that's all in just like a what a six-year span a five-year span in in the 90s like it's amazing yeah that's a good start really funny in all those supporting roles oh amazing yeah coneheads, coneheads yes he's like a romantic lead yes. in yeah yeah airheads oh he's the cop in airheads that's yeah. right he gets his nose bit off no that's, that's dirty, dirty work, work. No, that's a Saigon whore <laughs> who bit my nose off. <laughs> yeah, and then at the end he's like, "We're getting hitched." Yeah, and Norm's like, "Isn't that the Saigon whore that bit your nose off?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, he was like the best at doing those bit parts. By the so way, good. that was a posthumous appearance. It in was dirty it was work. Nineteen ninety-eight. Oh. Jumping the gun a little bit. Wait, he died. Hey, right. hey. there's Kyle's dryness. <laughs> Get some water for this kid. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, so Farley and Sandler were both fired at the end of the season in 1995. It was a bloodbath. Yeah. yeah. It was Sandler it, also. Yeah. There was the a lot whole of people. cast was gone. Yeah. yeah. Besides Spade, who was like the high school guy that's hanging out in the hometown a little too long. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure with Spade, same thing with Fred Armisen. He he's just really good at like bringing some energy into the writer's room, which I think you kind of need. And maybe that's what kept those guys around. Yeah. Fred Armisen was on SNL for like fucking ever. Uh, Mike Myers said of like getting fired for Chris, it's like he was almost happy that he got fired because he started to do more movies and stuff. And he's like, when you start doing movies, doing SNL makes no sense. And it's not because you're too big or whatever. He's like, when you start doing movies, people will see those two hours and love you for the rest of their life. Yeah. He goes, if you have a killer show on Saturday, people forget by Monday. I don't know. That's debatable. Some of the sketches are just so fucking legendary, yeah. though, that are like, it's life-changing into itself. But yeah, I don't because Chris Bartley, because Tommy Boy is amazing. Yeah. And so. let's put it into context. Tommy Boy came out in February 1995, and 94-95 was Chris's last season. So, unlike a lot of other people, he was in a great position because Tommy Boy was a financial hit. Yeah. So, not at it, first. It made money at first. Yeah. Not at first. Critics, Critics destroyed it. it. But no, it made some money, Kyle. But all those SNL For movies. For me, I crushed. saw it in the fucking theater. As I a did kid, too. And I loved it. In Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. In Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. <laughs> in the biggest theater at the Retlaw. <laughs> it was so beautiful. Yes. <laughs> I swear it was a hit. It did. It did make money. So that's a good position to be in yeah. as you're leaving SNL. But I feel like someone like Chris Farley, he needs that regiment. As fucked up as he was bad at it, he needs like some schedule. Structure. Yeah. Structure. Yeah, yeah, like when he was playing sports and stuff in college. I'm sure that's what kept him on the straight and narrow. Yeah. So it's like he gets fired, but also his first big movie comes out. Tommy Boy. No problem. I'm fucking going Hollywood, baby. Because yeah. on the flip side, when Lovitz left, it actually was kind of like a scheduling thing. Mm. Why he wasn't brought back. Because he was doing this movie called 
mom and dad saved the world. Oh, what? And he thought With it Terry was Gar. Yeah, he thought it was going to be a big hit. Oh my it god! It ended up getting shelved and released stinks. years later. Yeah, and he had no like movie no career yeah. to fall back on, so he had to like do these bit parts and oh, the and wedding then, singer. And he would like go and guest on SNL here and there as an appearance. And then Lauren took a shot at him in one episode, making fun of him for not leaving. Oh. <laughs> and then Lovitz was pissed. Oh, really? So it could be worse for Chris Farley, is what yeah. I'm saying. Uh, he had a big hit movie, which he was the star of. Yeah. Can't be it. But it was not as well-received as you think it is. And as we're talking about no, it. No, but th- throughout the 90s, Sandler would release all these movies, Happy Gilmore, you know. Uh, that wasn't well-received either. Yeah, none of them were. No the, SNL movie was received. By the maybe except for Maybe except for Wayne's World. Wayne's World, everybody loved, including Siskel and Ebert. Yeah. But it stops there. It's Do you the, know yeah. who hated Tommy Boy? Who? Roger Ebert. Of course. One star. Ugh. Tommy Boy is one of those movies that plays like an explosion down at the screenplay factory. You, you can almost picture a bewildered office boy, his face smudged with soot, wandering through the ruins and rescuing pages at random. <laughs> Too bad they didn't mail them to the insurance company instead of filming them. <laughs> I do like how he would just go, wow. Yeah. It is just, scorched earth. He went ham on it. Uh, yeah, he went fucking... <laughs> He went Charles Rocket's dad he on that. He went daddy ham on this shit. Uh, he said the movie is an assembly of cliches and obligatory scenes from dozens of other movies, all that are better. It is only one original idea, and that's a bad one. The inspiration of making the hero's sidekick into sim- simultaneously his buddy, his critic, and his rival. It's like the part was written by three writers locked in three separate rooms. Um, okay. And he just goes on to trash it. I'm getting lost in this review. Like yeah. I, don't, I don't even know what, what's going on. And that was <laughs> kind compared to the Black Sheep review. Oh, well, yeah. Gene Siskel said that Black Sheep is the first movie he's ever walked out on. <laughs> well, I mean, Black Sheep. We're going to get in that in a second. But the, the very end of this, this is one of the worst Ebert reviews of all time. But since then, the Brown Bunny was actually worse. But I don't want to get in front of you there. He says, no one is funny in Tommy Boy. There are no memorable lines. What? That's bullshit. None of the characters are interesting, except for the enigmatic figure played by Rob Lowe, who seems to have wandered over from Hamlet. What? Judging by the evidence on screen, the movie got a green light before a usable screenplay had been prepared, with everybody reassuring each other that since they were funny people, inspiration would overcome them. It was (laughs) Forrest Gump, I believe, who said, funny is as funny does. Look, Ebert (laughs) was not always correct. Yeah. And this time he took everything way too literally. What's important in Tommy Boy is the persona, the yeah. feel. It has a really cool Midwestern vibe to it. Yeah. And it's really earnest. That you know? movie was Chris Farley and his dad. Yeah, it's really authentic. And his Brian dad. Den- Brian Den- he was amazing. Yeah, it's and touching. Poe Derek. Yeah. Like he got so many good people in this movie. The 10 reference that you didn't get, remember? When he's like, wow, dad, she's like a 10. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> she starred in 10. Uh, yeah. Yes. His dad's name is Tom. Big Tommy Callahan. Yes. Chris's bloodline is all people in the automotive industry. Mm-hmm. It's fucking his uncle or grandfather was like an executive at Ford, and then it just keeps going down the line. Yeah. Um, this movie was made specifically for him, and it had so much of him in it. He was so excited for it. When he went to the premiere, he was like, this is a great movie. I can't wait for people to see it. And then he reads that yeah, and really got depressed. Was like, wow, I can't even believe that the favorite thing I've ever done in my life that means so much to me 
It's well, just those, those premiered, by Roger Ebert. Movie premieres are keyed up like that. But remember when David Axelrod, you know, uh, David Strickland, rather? <laughs> you always say David Axelrod. <laughs> I know. He was cut out of the entire movie that is his first big mo- yeah. major motion picture. So yeah. at least Chris Farley wasn't cut out of it. He should have been happy he was cut out of that piece of shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Voices of nature. But also the VHS sales for Tommy Boy, like, exploded. Instant classic. Yeah. Yeah. And it included a lot of the bits he would do in real life, like fat guy in a little coat. Yeah, yeah. He would do that in the <laughs> office at SNL. And David Spade would be like, put my fucking jacket down. You're going to rip it. You're going to rip it. Yeah. Like, fat guy in a little coat. That dynamic between him and David Spade is just amazing. It's like it's like a legendary two-man it's show. It's a good pair. Yeah. The cynicism of David Spade. Yeah. And then the aw shucks earnestness of Chris Farley. Yeah. So- this movie gets trashed by critics everywhere, and Chris was heartbroken. He thought the movie was great, and he was right. After he died, Time Magazine, I believe in 2000, came out with the top 10 comedies of all time, and it was in the top 10. Ebert was wrong, and sometimes he knew he was wrong, and this is definitely <laughs> one of those times. Yeah. No, because- Very wrong. What do you mean he knew he was wrong? Ba- well, there's other examples where, for instance, he hated Kids in the Hall Brain Candy, which is a hilarious movie. Yeah. And Cisco called him out. He's like, what the hell's wrong with you? This was a funny <laughs> movie. And then in 1999, we're right off the heels of the Mary Kay Bergman episode. Yeah. He gave a negative review to South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Wow. And then later that summer, when he was reviewing a different movie that he thought was bad, he's like... You know, the more I think about it, I was wrong about the South Park movie. Well, these dudes are just bitter. <laughs> I didn't have the right attitude that day. They're bitterly angry dudes that just like, you know, the, comedies never get the respect. That I was going to say, this yeah. is the disrespect that the film industry at large has towards. The disdain for comedies. Towards comedies. It's like, yeah. totally correct, because another movie they fucking trashed was Home Alone. Oh, my God. And they had to do an entire episode saying... Retracting? Yes. No, saying like, (laughs) gee, what did we get wrong about Home Alone? Because it was such a fucking sensation. Yeah. And they had no idea. They just didn't see it. They didn't see it. Oh, my God. Well, they're also just like a couple of curmudgeonly fucking ass. Well, rest in peace. (laughs) (laughs) But they were, though. They were just kind of like jaded and angry. I don't agree with that because they got a lot of things right. And they were champions of a lot of other But hit comedies, it's hard to tell because by the numbers, it seems like a cliche. Unless it, it all works. The other thing where they really have no credibility with 90s comedies they trashed Sandler's movies, of course. Yeah. Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore. The they but destroyed they, no, his movies. Listen to this. Get it. Then in the review of Bulletproof, Ebert's like, actually, this is the first time I've liked Adam Sandler in a movie. <laughs> what? It's like, you're fucking insane because this is one of his shittier movies. Yeah. Well, it's like the official just a makeup call, but it's the worst yeah. call ever. <laughs> so anyway, love Siskel and Ebert, but do not trust them on 90s comedies. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it makes... 8, 16, 24. It makes four times the budget. It was an $8 million budget. It ended up making $32 million in That's the box a hit. office. Yes, but then made even more. It made a lot of and money. The, in they VHS used to make sales. so much money on VHS and like Blockbuster yeah. and rentals. Huge. That, yeah. that, that's that what my, Matt Damon says. They don't make movies like that anymore. Yeah. Because no. there's no secondary market. They can't make, make their money back. Well, I mean, Netflix, I guess, but. But they, it's not the same. Yeah, it's not. It isn't the same. No, it's not yeah. making a rental DVD. fee every single exactly, time. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And it cu- it flows in for like weeks and weeks and weeks after, and yeah. you're making tons of money off of that. And you guys remember like in college, DVDs were huge. 
So oh, yeah. remember uh, Grandma's Boy from Happy Madison? <laughs> yeah. Major flop in theaters yep. and made a shit ton of money on DVD. Yeah. That's how Family Guy came back, actually. Yep. They, right. they, got, they got canceled in uh, 99 or 2000, yeah. and then their DVD sales uh, brought them back. To, like, okay. To, we just canceled you, and now we're going to bring you back for a $100 million contract. You're and a hundred million years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's still going. It's a Scientology uh, contract. Yeah. <laughs> I would just like to say I was an early supporter of Tommy Boy. Yes. When it started making more money on VHS, they're like, all right, we got something here. The studio immediately goes to Lauren. They go, all right, what's that next project that you had? Let's. It's greenlit already. And Lauren's like, our script's not even ready yet. And they're like, we don't care. Start He's filming. He's got vocal fry now. Yeah. 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 Hey. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the studio's like, are you okay, dude? Like, <laughs> I don't know. You I've been better. <laughs> so they start pushing them like into production, just like, and it's Fred Wolf that's writing it. Legend has it that they started filming this movie without having a script completely done. Oh, I believe that. Um, it's very apparent. And Lauren said that he feels bad because he's like, you know, Chris really took it to heart about the bad reviews with this one, but it just wasn't made with the same love and attention that we gave to Tommy Boy. But it could have been his fault because he just rushed it because he gets a cut out of anyone that does yeah. SNL. He gets a cut of their entire fucking career. Yeah, exactly. So he probably just like, you know, maybe he's going through a divorce or something. He need more <laughs> some extra scratch. And he's like just pushing these projects through. Yeah, yeah those not- movies. Dude, Black yeah. Sheep is horrible. It, it is. It, it doesn't hold. There's no. You can't even rewatch. Vote for Donnelly. Like, eh, a little bit. It's, yeah. No, it's, he it's just pretty, falls down a hill. It's yeah. Pretty, that's the <laughs> only thing people remember from that. Yeah. yeah. It's sad watching it. Really. Yeah. It doesn't have that spark. It's there falling was one down the hill part, and them walking up the uh, floor when like the yeah, cabin's yeah. tilted. That's there it. was one thing where uh, I it's think an interesting shot. Yeah. Exactly. David Spade gave. Uh, <laughs> Gary Busey the finger in the car. He's like, <laughs> yeah. "Hold on, I got something for you." He pulls out of his pocket his middle finger. Yeah, <laughs> the only, that was the only thing. Yeah, I took that was away pretty from inspired. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A middle finger gag. Genius. Yeah. The yeah. only part I thought was funny when that Christine Ebersol is that political lady. She's giving a speech. She's like, "I would just like to say." Then she sees Farley like up on some kind of wire. Holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> it's a re- absurd movie. Is that yeah. worth buying the ticket though? No. Not really. No. A lot of juvenile humor. Yeah. But it was too much of him yelling. It was just Chris Farley yelling, getting stuck on like an airplane. Yeah. You know. But this is in his psyche what he was, you know, supposed to be looked at as like. Comedically fucking talented. Fat guy falls down. Fatty falls down. Um, Tommy want wingy. He he didn't. <laughs> yeah, Tommy want wingy worked a year before. That's yeah. his time. It didn't work. His movie career. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't work anymore. So when he was filming Black Sheep, he wasn't having the best time. He was there with David Spade. It's his friend. So I mean, they had a good time together. But deep down, he knew it wasn't going to be a good movie. He ended up inviting his brother Tom Jr. to the premiere of Black Sheep, and. As the movie was going on, his brother said that Chris was just sinking further into his seat like, fuck, this movie sucks. Oh, it's no. horrible. And so he ended up not going back with his brother anywhere. He just took off by himself, went on a two-week bender, and ended up in rehab again. Fuck. Because he just knew the bad press was coming. He just felt like he couldn't do anything right. But he's that using point. that as an excuse, as a crutch, like, oh, because this movie's not great, now I can just get very fucked up. Yeah. Which is ridiculous because Tommy Boy was a success. You can put that in the success column. 
And that was just the year before. Yeah, but if you're that sensitive of a person and are easily depressed and are doing drugs anyway, that makes it easier to become depressed. It's just a, a recipe for disaster. Yeah. He goes to rehab and comes out and is just, he's not doing well. I heard that that day after the premiere where he was with his brother, the brother said, dad called me the next day and he's like, what the fuck is wrong with Chris? He tore apart our hotel room yesterday. Yeah. Oh my God. He just went Tasmanian devil, ripped up the fucking hotel room, took off, went on a two week bender and ended up. Yeah. He was just super unpredictable and just like would just go ballistic and insane all the time. Go Belushi. Go Belushi. (laughs) Hello. He would get really fucked up and just ask people like Norm MacDonald, am I really funny? Yeah. Do you God. think I'm funny? Oh, Dude, that, that exists. I was doing shows with a comic who's famous, and oh. we were on the road together. Is he still living? Yes. In the limelight a little bit now because of something that's going on in his life. But, Does it uh, involve Tiffany Haddish? No. Okay. I remember him getting off stage, and the crowd is going crazy. Like fucking standing ovation. The green room is shaking from people screaming so loud and clapping. Yeah. And he comes back and he's sitting down and he just looks really depressed. And I'm like, dude, what's going on? And he looks up at me and his eyes are just full of tears. And he goes, am I really funny? And I was like, do you not hear what's going on right now? Like, what are you talking about? And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, they're only laughing because they know me from like TV or whatever. Oh, fuck that. He's, I was this like, guy's dude. looking for a compliment. Yeah, he's fishing for a compliment. Come on. But he started like literally sobbing in the green room, being like, I'm not fucking funny. If I if these people didn't know me, I wouldn't be able to get a laugh. I'm like, well, that's a good position to be in. A drug user? Uh previous. Hmm. It sounds like drug dry drunk, possibly. Or he might have been on. I don't know. Okay. Either way. He sounds like a mess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, here at some point. Good guy, though. Yeah. I'm, okay. I'm on the edge of my But he's great. Yeah. He's a yeah. great guy. Yeah. He's a good guy, and he's Lunatic. really, really fucking guy. funny. I hate his guts. Great guy, though. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he gets out of rehab, and it just doesn't work. They said that every time he went to rehab, it was like slapping a Band-Aid on him that would just fall off. Like, Putting a Band-Aid on the Titanic. Right. For some reason, Lauren thought it would be a good idea to invite Chris back to host SNL. In October of 97. There was a Maxim uh, magazine article about this specifically. It's bad. Uh, Will Farrell was very honest about it and said, like, I've never seen any human being as messed up as Chris Farley during this time. Tune in next week for the conclusion of the life and death of Chris Farley. <laughs> <laughs>